So I'm Keith, and I'm a sex addict. Hi, everybody. Um, so the first thing I would need to do is probably apologize because I'm up here. And I think what they did, i just let you know a little bit behind the scenes, I think what they did is they went down the list of the really good speakers, <laughs> and all of them were tied up. And they kept going down the list. They ended up ended up with me, and it's like, well, maybe Keith will do it. So, you know, here I am. Um, hopefully, that I can give you something that uh, you can you can take with you. Um, if you are not an SIA member, as Jim said, we're glad you're here. Uh, you're the reason we scheduled this meeting, so we're glad you're here. The reason I'm here <clears throat> is to tell my story, which is a really weird thing. Um, because I think of my story and I go, who, who would want to hear that? I mean, it, there's just there's nothing special to my story. I mean, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a professional in the field. I mean, surely you have something better to listen to than my story. Um, then again, maybe my story would help somebody. Um, there is a warning in my story, um, but I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I did decide not to tell the entire story. Um, it has taken me almost 60 years to get here. So I did decide to compress it a little bit. Um, I have my notes up here to keep me focused and uh, in case I get tempted to tell someone else's story along the way. Um, I'm gonna talk for about 20 minutes and then we're gonna open it up for any questions that folks might have either for me or about the group, uh, the fellowship, whatever. Um, so let's get to it. So part one of Keith's story is called What It Was Like, or What I Was Like. Um, my addictive behaviors really centered around masturbation to fantasy. This was with or without porn. Uh, porn was a big part of my life for, gosh, years, but I did not have to have porn to act out. Um, uh, I have this old brain. Uh, through my fantasies, I could have sex with anyone I wanted to, anytime I wanted to. Um, one of the things that I am the most embarrassed about is that I would follow women around in public places like stores and get a good visual image of that woman so that I could then have fantasy sex with them later. Um, you would be accurate if you called that stalking. And uh, that is in my history. So um, I'm not too much into why I became a sex addict or what caused me to become a sex addict. If you talk to my sponsees, you'll, they'll, they'll echo that because we don't really spend a whole lot of time on why. Um, I'm really more, more focused on what am I gonna do about it. Um, but having said that, there are probably two uh, big contributors to me becoming a sex addict, and one of those is that I was, in my teen years, I was painfully shy. I mean, horribly, painfully shy. I, I was absolutely terrified of women and girls. The, the more attractive the woman, the more, the more terrified. I mean, I would just become a blithering idiot. Um, uh, that continued through probably about the 11th grade-ish. I mean, I'm, I'm an old man, so I can't remember exactly, but somewhere around 11th grade. Um, by junior high school, I had resigned myself that I would probably never marry. You sort of have to be able to be in the 
presence of a woman and actually talk to them before you can marry. Um, I had also resigned myself that I would probably never have sex. By the way, it is okay to laugh at the ridiculousness that I'm that I'm saying in this story here. Um, so you got the shyness, and then somewhere around. By the way, if if you can't hear me, please raise your hand or whatever. I'll try to work that out. Um, in addition to the shyness, so the other contributor that I think was uh, around the time that I was 12 or 13 years old, I found my parents' stash of porn magazines, and um, I was all alone in the house after school, so my parents both worked. My sister was my only sibling, and she's six years older than I am, and she was off to college. So, I mean, when I got home from school, I knew exactly what I was going to spend the, the next few hours is with these women in these magazines. Um, I learned sex from that time in my life. I learned what sex was all about from the women in those magazines which of course means that I learned that sex was all about me and it was all about my fantasy and it was all about fantasy in general. Um, so skipping forward a little bit, um, I did eventually find the courage to go out on dates, but I was still afraid. I was still afraid that I would never have sex. Um, fast forward a little bit more. Um, I did eventually find the courage to ask someone to marry me, and I've been married twice. My wife now is my second wife, and in both marriages, I expected my wife to fulfill my fantasy because, of course, it was all about me, um, and yet I was always fantasizing. I was fantasizing about other women. I, was, I would fantasize even in non-sexual situations I thought about sex in meetings at work, my job. I thought about sex when I was shopping. I thought about sex when I was in church. I thought about sex when I was walking down the street. I thought about sex when I was watching TV. I thought about sex when I was having a crappy day. I thought about sex when I was having a good day. I thought about sex when the marriage or relationship was going well. I thought about sex when the marriage was going not so well. I thought about sex when I was faced with an extremely triggering situation. I thought about sex when I was in an absolutely non-sexual situation like watching football. Basically, if I was breathing, I was thinking about sex. I'd say I, I thought about sex if I was conscious, except I thought about sex a lot when I was asleep. <laughs> um, I could not imagine life without sex or without actually, for me, it was fantasy and masturbation. So I mentioned that there's a warning in my story, and here's here's the warning. Um, we in this fellowship and a, and a lot of uh, people in the therapy profession say that sex addiction is typically progressive. It normally leads to more extreme behaviors, and that is true. That is typically what happens. Um, I did some worse things than that, but actually my addiction never really progressed. I did the same things for 45 years and never went on to more extreme behaviors. And the problem with that is that I was un completely unwilling to admit that I was a sex addict because it, you know, no, no, no. People who are sex addicts do those things. Mm -hmm. I'm still doing the same things that I've done for 45 years. Um, and yet I was obsessed. I couldn't control it. I couldn't stop. 
Um, my addiction was damaging relationships with others, and yet that knowledge wasn't enough. A lot of you can relate to this. Um, nothing was enough to motivate me to stop, even though I wanted to, even though I knew that I had to. Nothing I tried enabled me to stop. I could stop for short periods, but I was always back to acting out. It is easy for us to think, it was easy for me to think, I'm not progressing, and therefore I'm not an addict, and that's just not the case. An addict means that I can't stop, I can't control it, and that, that described me to a T. By the way, none of this was my fault. <laughs> um, you've, uh, there, there's the old line from the movie Love Story from several years ago that most of you are probably too young to know that movie. Uh, the line is, love means never having to say you're sorry. Well, uh, being an addict to me means never having to say it was your fault. <laughs> so that's part one. Part two of Keith's story is what happened. On December the 14th of 2013, my wife busted me while I was acting out, and it wasn't the first time, but it became fairly obvious fairly quickly that this was going to be the last time that she caught me acting out. Um, I had tried to get sober for my wife before, but it never worked. Um, this time, I, I, I can't really explain why this time the motivation actually stuck, but this time, this motivated me to get sober for myself and not for her. I, I wanted to get sober because it was right, and for some reason that has stayed with me. Um, problem is, I didn't know what to do because I had tried, I had been to counselors, I had an accountability, I had had accountability partners in my life. Um, I had tried prayer, church devotion, meetings with meetings with my pastor. Um, I had tried other tips that people had told me to do when something happens and that's triggering, you know, do this with your brain or whatever it is. And none of that could keep me from acting out. It's like it worked for a little bit, but it only worked for a little bit. And then I found you people. The, uh, the devotional that was read was incredibly appropriate to my story. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to follow that. But I found you, even though you weren't lost, but I found you. Um, and I started attending meetings here in that room right across the hall. Um, and in these meetings, I saw people who were not acting out, but they were not quite knuckling it. And if you're not familiar with that term, so my knuckles aren't white. I have to do this. If I do this, my knuckles become white. And this is the picture of someone who is trying not to act out. Oh, God, please keep me from acting out. I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. And see, I thought that's what sobriety was. I thought that's what it was all about. It was, it was about finding enough willpower that just by, by the force of my presence or personality or whatever, I could somehow keep from acting out. Um, but what I saw here were people that were not, that's not what their sobriety was about. They were sober. Some of them 10, 12 years, I think, when I, when I started here. Um, and they were peaceful. And they were happy. They were laughing. That insulted me. I was, I was like a broken idiot. And I walked in here and they were all happy and, you know, <laughs> you know, and I, and, 
but they were peaceful and they were happy. And I, I had to do what they told me to do. I just, I could not deny what I saw. So, uh, as Bart mentioned, uh, in two, within two weeks, you know, they said you need a sponsor. Uh, one of the, one of the, um, old timers who is here tonight, the very first meeting that I was at, he came up to me after the meeting. He said, I am so glad you're here. You need to get a sponsor. You need to get to work. Uh, within two weeks, I had a sponsor and I did what he told me to do. And I took these 12 steps as he directed me. Um, within about six or seven months, I had my first sponsee. Within about nine or 10 months, I had taken all 12 steps with my sponsor. Um, in time, I started focusing more on helping others. And that had to come in time because that did not come naturally for me. I am so selfish and so self-absorbed that the idea of helping someone else just <laughs> didn't occur to me. I'm like, I'm the last person that you would want helping somebody else. But I started learning that that's what, that's what keeps you sober. Um, meetings even became less about what I could receive from the meeting and became more about what I could share with somebody else. So that's part two of uh, my story, um, what happened. Part three of Keith's story is what I'm like now. So thanks to SAA, thanks to this fellowship, this program, and thanks to a power greater than me, I have not acted out since December the 14th of 2013. That's a little over five and a half years. And that alone is a huge victory, but that is not the most significant change that has occurred in my life. I can't point to a day or a date when my mind was changed. I can't point to a date when I was no longer sick but somewhere in the process of taking these steps and trying to live them daily, I lost the desire to act out. And I'm going to say that again the way I really think of that phrase, except I'm going to say it in kind of a PG-rated version of it. I freaking lost the freaking desire to freaking act out. <laughs> <laughs> I still face the same temptations. I still notice big visual triggers. My brain still sexualizes situations that a normal person's brain would not sexualize. And yet, I can't remember the last time I wanted to act out. The last time that I wanted to act out was long enough ago that I just can't, I can't remember when that was. And if you had asked me that question six or seven years ago, you know, Keith, when was the last time you wanted to act out? It would have been like, what time is it? <laughs> you know, because, I mean, it was constant. Um, today, I don't act out because I don't have the desire to act out. And the fact that the desire is gone is evidence that a power greater than me has done something that I had not been able to do. These 12 steps did not enable Keith to stop acting out. These 12 steps helped get junk out of the way so God could remove Keith's desire to act out. And that's what's been happening in AA since the 1930s. Um, as, as Jim mentioned, that's where our 12 steps come from. Um, in AA, you'd have the newcomer would come to a meeting and old timer would, would corral him and take him over into a corner and say, not only if you take these steps, not only will you not drink, you won't even want to drink. And that's what I have experienced in my life, and that's what this program is about, really. Um, 
Because as long as the desire is present, I'll find a way to act out. Or the way to act out will find me somewhere. Um, but if the desire is gone, why would I act out? Um, I hope the following example is not offensive or triggering to anyone. But I don't like turnip greens. <laughs> I do not like turnip greens. I have no desire to eat turnip greens. Uh, you bring them to me, and I will refuse them. I'm sorry. I, I have no desire. And so if you were to come up to me and say, Keith, I have the latest and greatest strategy for how you can refuse turnip greens, I would look at you about as crazy as you guys are looking at me now because I, I don't have the desire. Why, you know, thank you very much. I'm glad. You know, I hope it works for you, you know, that can, can keep you from but if I don't have desire, why would I act out? And, and when it comes to my addiction, again, this is not what I set out to do. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's what has occurred. The desire is gone, so why, why would I act out? Um, we're talking about what it's like now, what I'm like now. I continue to take steps 10, 11, and 12 daily. Step 10, I continue to watch for defects of character, and I try to clean up the messes as I make them. Step 11, I continue to pursue a relationship with God. Step 12, I continue to try to help other addicts. Um, my battle now is not acting out versus not acting out. I'm not actively working on not acting out. I really don't spend any time thinking about that. My battle is, do I need to make amends for what I just said or what I just did? Have I been defensive yet again? Am I giving time to my wife? Am I giving time to my sponsees and other people in the program? Did I serve someone else today? Oh boy, and those things are a battle for me. They do not come easy for this self, selfish, self-absorbed guy. Um, I think, and feedback from my wife seems to confirm, that I approach life sanely now. I approach it normally. Um, and that's what this program can do. Step two says, again, going back to the devotional that was read, step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Sanity. I have been given a reprieve. It's a daily reprieve. And it is contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition, but it is a reprieve that I can depend on. So that is part three to Keith's story. And I have an addendum, a little topic that I want to talk about just for a couple of minutes. And I call this topic, There is a Solution. And those of you familiar with the big book of AA know there's a, it's one of the most well-known chapters in that book. It's entitled, There is a Solution. Um, but that's not, not what I'm talking about quite yet. Um, for most of my life, I knew what the solution was. And the solution was sex. Feeling sad? Probably need sex. Feeling kind of sick? Eh, sex. Got relationship trouble? Need, need a little more sex. Is sex too important to you? 
probably just needs a little bit more sex. So that's what I thought the solution was. And then I became confronted with the fact that 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 the solution was not sex. And so then I came here. And the funny thing about coming here is that I came here knowing what the solution was. The solution was some strategy. That's what you all were going to teach me. SIA is some new strategy that I needed to learn. It's some new way of thinking. You were going to show me the book to read. You were going to give me a new way to see women. You were going to give me some new approach. You were going to explain to me some phrase that I could chant. You were going to show me the secret handshake. You were going to show me where I could get the secret decoder ring. You were going to tell me something. And then I could go back to my same life just without this little teeny behavior issues. That's what I thought you were going to tell me. Oddly enough, that wasn't the plan you showed me. The solution was to do some things that made no sense. And we read them earlier. These 12 steps make no sense to me. They would not be the 12 steps that I would have come up with had you asked me to come up with them. Um, sorry, turn the page too quickly. The solution was to allow a power greater than me to allow God, whom I already knew everything about, by the way. <laughs> Dwell on that for a minute. I was supposed to allow God to change me. And that once I was changed, this wouldn't be a problem. That was incomprehensible to me because for years I had asked God to remove this. And yet... These people were sober and peaceful and maybe even happy. That's what the solution was. And I can attest to the solution because I'm living it. It's not that Keith has solved the problem. It is not that Keith has figured it out or that Keith can stop acting out or that Keith learned the trick or found the decoder ring. The solution is that this program and taking these 12 steps with a sponsor's help enabled God to do something I didn't think was even possible, to remove my desire to act out, and that is what I call a solution. And that's all I have. I'm Keith. I'm a sex addict. Thanks. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. We are opening up questions. Okay. Um, Keith, I know you said maybe you didn't want to talk about it, but I'm just kind of curious. Um, and for other people, too, it, it's kind of a important. Um, and for me, it was important. What, what, what drove you to walk through the door? What was the, was the incident or just a desire you just had had enough and sick and tired? Oh, no. I wish it was just a desire. I wish it was being sick and tired, but it was um, I was scared to death that my marriage was going to end. And I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't even look past that. I mean, I don't, you know, the, it's not like I thought my marriage would end and my job would be over and all, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't a, a cascading thing, a list of things. It was, oh God, my marriage is going to end. And that was, that was what drove me into these doors. And I mean, uh, a lot of you in here 
uh, well, I guess everybody tonight has come through this door, but a lot of you in here have come through it the way that I came through it, which was terrified. Um, so I, I don't know if that fully answered your question. Yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you. How did you find it? Uh, that's an interesting story because um, I did not find this group from the Internet. One of the – okay, so this is not the first time that I got busted. Um, and in one of the books that I had read about – this was probably a, a, a book on porn addiction and on, you know, how to stop, you know, looking at porn. And I remembered another S fellowship in there. And I looked up that S fellowship on a website and I went to that place. They had a list of all the meetings that were occurring in Birmingham. And I went to that other S meeting on a Monday night and I saw that this meeting was meeting right over there on Tuesday night. And that's how I found you was through another program who had a list of all the S fellowship meetings in Birmingham. Anything else for me or about the fellowship? Or? Yeah. Keith, one thing. Would you expand a little bit on the transition from taking care of Keith, self-centeredness, mm -hmm. to being genuinely concerned about other people? It's funny because, I mean, that is still an ongoing process for Keith uh, because I am so selfish and I am very self-absorbed. Um, I really, I mean, I got my first sponsee not because I cared. I'm sorry. Oh, God, this is going to sound terrible. Not because I cared about that person, but it was because you told, you all told me. <laughs> You've got to do this. You, this is, you will not, I mean, you said, you said. That you will not stay sober if you just come here, get well, and then leave. You will have to help other people. And I mean, I, again, I, I can't explain to you why the motivation stuck, but I was just determined that I was going to do whatever you guys told me to do. And so you told me I had to sponsor, and so I was going to sponsor. And um, it's funny because sometimes. There are things that I need to do in my life, like a, a character defect that I need to own up to or some amends that I need to make to someone. And sometimes the only, the only thing that makes me clean up that mess is because I've got sponsees. And I, if I don't have the courage to do it, how in the world can I ask them to do it? And sometimes that's the only thing that drives me to that. Um, I, Maybe I sort of answered your question there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the question. I may be asking the wrong person, but how did your wife respond when you started coming? And, and I'm I'm only going to talk about that in a very small way. Um, one of, the, one of the boundaries that I've tried to set up for myself is that being here is not about talking about my marriage or my wife because that is so freaking easy to do. It just is. I mean, it's easy. You know, like I said, this was not my problem. This was not my fault. 
and I could lay the blame at anyone's feet. But what, what my wife did is she backed off and she basically let me work the program. And I don't know that I can say that she had so much faith in me. I think she had faith in God mm -hmm. that if this was going to work, it was going to have to be something that God did. Because, again, this was not my first trip, you know. So that's that's probably about all that, I, yeah. that I'll say about that. But yeah, I thank you for the question. Yeah, What would you do different? Hmm. Hmm. I would not. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Never thought about it. No, I haven't. I, I, have, no, I have no idea what, how I would answer that. The, the reason being, what I, what I did when I came here is I really just, I tried to listen. And what you all said is what I tried to do. And uh, you all taught me that this was not about Keith, that Keith can't do it. I mean, you know, those of you that were sober, you know, 10, 12 years when I came here and you said, hey, this I can't do it. I found out 10 years ago that I couldn't do it. And uh, guess what? You can't either. You know, uh, but you showed me the way and you said, OK, but look, Keith, you don't have to reinvent it. You know, you don't have to figure this out. We've already got it. Here, here it is. Here it is. Twelve steps. These are so simple, but they are absolutely not easy. So thank you. I hope I somewhat answered your question there and didn't tap dance around it too much. Anyone else want to embarrass the speaker? <laughs> yes. Uh, was the first step one that you felt was the hardest, or was there another one that you thought that would be The most difficult step for me is step nine, which becomes step ten because I'm supposed to take step ten every day and make amends along the way as I go. So that, you know, that's the most difficult step for me. Um, my belief about step one is that for me, step one was worked out there. I took step one out there. Step one was me coming to a realization of a truth that was already true. I just didn't realize it. And once I realized it, I had to do something. And that's what drove me here. So to me, step one was what got me here. Thank you for the question, John. Thank you. Yes. Um, you mentioned that you already knew everything about God. Yes. <laughs> um, and I'm guessing. I'm so embarrassed that someone picked on that. That's the thing you'll take with you from the video. Well, I'm guessing you said it facetiously. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So can you point to a specific belief about God that changed over the course of the program? that might have helped you or allowed you to become so? So what I'm going to say is, you know, it can't leave the walls of this room. I'm going to turn off my recorder. Um, this is my church. 
I'm crying all night. I'm going to cry now. Um, when I come here, I see grace dispensed in a way that I can't see at church. And I go to a church, but those people there will never know me like you know me. Um, so my, my belief about church has changed a good bit. Um, and I'll share something else. This is this is not from me. This is something that another um, guy who attends this, this fellowship, he mentioned one time that he had certain beliefs about God, and they were really getting in the way of his recovery, and he had to just kind of put them aside. And because and and then just just take the steps, you know, just work the program. And he said, now that I am different, he said, now I've picked those things back up, and now they're meaningful. I, I find meaning in different ways than than I did before. I mean, oh gosh, I was so self confident. Uh, mm. So anyway, that's that's something that, uh, again, hopefully I didn't tap answer around your question too badly. Thank you, Greg. Anybody else? Going once. <laughs> Sold. No, I just I jump straight from one to three. <laughs> I'm too I'm too old I'm too old to go to the Oliver thing. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you.